Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. This is Kale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's Buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah, this is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Camaro, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon Hump Day Indeed, Wednesday, October 12th, 2016. It is 10 p.m. in the East Coast, 7 p.m. here in the West, and I have literally been tingling with anticipation all this live-long day waiting to share with you the second and final part of my four years in the making interview conversation with the one and only Erica Slazak. You know, I'm not going to talk you off here in the outset tonight as I did last night. Uh, you know, if you missed part one of this conversation last night, you really should stop what you're doing at once and go pull it down from the archives. It's that good. Uh, but if you caught part one, then you already have a pretty good sense of the state of play here. Tonight's episode is a continuation of that interview, and just in the interest of full disclosure, let me tell you that what you're about to hear right now contains a chunk of my original interview with Miss Lazak from four years ago, fused together with my follow-up interview with her from early last month. Uh, last night, Erica talked a great deal about her childhood and her early life, training to be an actress and making her way, quite accidentally from the sound of things, to daytime television, where she more than made her mark across four-plus decades in the role of Victoria Lord Riley Buchanan Carpenter Davidson Banks Buchanan et al., on the classic ABC soap opera, One Life to Live. Last night, she told you all about the beginning of that journey, and tonight, Erica goes pretty close to the bone about the end of the road for Vicky and for One Life itself, and about how she views her incredible career now, half a decade or so removed from having to bid such a wrenching farewell to a job that she so clearly loved. When I knew that we would be having this conversation, I threw it up on Facebook and Twitter and and, uh, posted on a couple of boards just soliciting fan questions so that the fans could participate as well. And I got barraged by emails and tweets and things. And and, uh, perhaps predictably, the number one question I got back from everybody who responded was, what was it like to work with fill-in-the-blank? I've seen and heard an endless stream of actors talk about how they love working with you. I mean, I'll tell you that Eileen Kristen told me on this very program that 
when you step on set with Erica Slezak at 9.30 in the morning, Erica Slezak not only knows her lines cold, but she knows your lines better than you do. Yeah. And, you know, you haven't really gotten a, a lot of opportunities to talk about your co-stars. And, uh, you know, of course, in 40 years, you cross paths with just about everybody on God's Green Earth. Yeah. Uh, we don't have to belabor this, but, you know, I and your fans would love to hear your thoughts on working with some of the greats of all time. I mean, I'd love for you to tell me what pops in your head when I mention, say, uh, Phil Carey. <laughs> I adored Phil. I absolutely adored him. He was the grumpiest, sweetest, most wonderful guy. And, yes, he was very grumpy. <laughs> but And, and I, I must say that I was very sorry that they never let me marry him. <laughs> because I was the only character, the only female practically around that he didn't marry Phil. I think that's correct. Phil was all work. He was wonderful. He was so quick and funny. But he was such a professional, and he worked very hard. And his character was rock solid all the time. You know what's funny is Phil let you, as Vicky, bring out a side of Asa that he didn't let anybody else bring out that side of. Yeah, because we were equals, but... Still, I was only a female, <laughs> and that was Ace's, you know, whole thing. You're only women. You're only women. But I loved Phil. I loved him, and I enjoyed working with him. I didn't work with him nearly enough. That's the one person I wish they'd let me marry, even if it was only for six months. Which was about the average length of his marriages anyway. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Perhaps your most famous co-star and one half of what arguably was your most popular relationship on One Life to Live, Robin Strasser. Oh, God. Now you're talking real love. I love Robin. I think she is a brilliant actress. And I have said many times that you're required to bring something to the table when you show up on set. And Robin always brought a Thanksgiving feast. She would show up on set so completely Dorian that it was freaking scary sometimes. (laughs) But brilliant. And I think I was... Not everybody liked working with Robin because she's very strong and very tough and very demanding. And you have to be able to play with her and work with her and give back what she gives you. And I loved it. If I saw I had a scene with Robin, I couldn't wait to do it. (laughs) Couldn't wait. And, my God, we did enough of them. Oh, my goodness. Over the years, you two were involved in every situation, every bit of hijinks. It was... And I have always said that I felt that was the strongest relationship on the show over the years. Not male-female, but those two women. So much hatred and yet so much love and respect between you two. Oh, God, yeah. I love her and I respect her and I think she's awesome. Awesome. She's tough. She demands a lot from you. And that's wonderful. I love that. Hillary B. Smith. I like Hillary. I, I like Hillary too. I really like Hillary. When Hillary came on the show, I was delighted because Hillary is such a wonderful actress. And we had a whole different kind of relationship. It was a much lighter relationship because Vicky and Nora were friends. We'd see each other and and you know we'd work on a scene together, and it was so easy being with her because she's a very giving actress, very giving, and so quirky and so real. Yes, totally. Her line deliveries are so interesting, and it's never what you think is going to come out of her mouth. And you think, wow, what a great way to say that line. And it threw a whole new perspective on the scene. Yeah, I loved Hillary. You know, I was profoundly disappointed that in later years of the show, the writers seemed to forget all about what great friends Nora and Vicky once were. I know, I know, I know. Especially after and she got involved with Clint. I mean, that was, that was natural territory for you guys to have uh, yeah. conflict and, you know, uh, very adult emotional scenes. Yeah, 
we had a scene one day and we looked at each other and said, my God, we haven't worked together for <laughs> a year. Roy Thinnes. Oh, I love Roy. You're asking me about nice people. <laughs> I love Roy. He was an absolute pleasure to work with. I think all my guys were. Some of them a little trickier than others. But Roy was just a joy from the minute he set foot on that set. He's a gentleman. He's so smart and so loving and warm. And he played Sloan so well. You bet. Oh, it was lovely. It, he was lovely. I'm so sorry they got rid of him. Because I think, you know, that could have been a very long and a very complicated relationship between the two of them. Someone I had on this very program a couple of years ago and had a great conversation with her, Jessica Tuck. <laughs> I love my Jessie, <laughs> my baby. One of the uh, best. One of the best. Uh, she is. She is one of the best. She's a free spirit. She is so glorious. And the energy and the joy that she brings to her own life and to the lives of people around her is just a gift. It's a gift to be near her because she's lovely. And she's a super actress. Oh, and, and, you know, and in the beginning, because Megan hated Vicky, Vicky hated her, you know, and then we found out we were mother and daughter, and she hated me even more. And, and then we, as we got to play more and more, it, oh, what a lovely relationship developed. Just lovely. And the intense love that you two had for each other by the end was just glorious yeah. to behold. It really was. Yeah, thank you. Nathan Fillion. Nathan, my Nathan. <laughs> Nathan came on the show. I think it was his first job. And he had a funny long haircut. <laughs> and I loved him from the second he started. He was so talented. And I will tell you that after he left, they tried to recast Joey a thousand times. Uh-huh. And it never, never found it. Because they were trying to recast Nathan. And that couldn't work. I mean, we had good Joeys, but there was something so unique about Nathan. There was an inner spark and a light and a humor that no one ever captured. You know, he, he almost had a halo around his head. He was so brightly charged. I mean, you just knew that he was going to be, whatever he did, he was going to yeah. be fantastic at it. He's so special. And when the, when we did the 40th anniversary of the show, Frank, our producer, wanted to bring back Nathan as Joey because they didn't have a current Joey then. And I think he called his agent. The agent went, oh, no, he's not going to come back and do it. So, <laughs> so Frank hung up, and he picked up the phone and called Nathan directly. Wow. And said, you want to come back? And Nathan went, yes, absolutely. I mean, how sweet. You bet. And at that point, you know, already big in Hollywood. Yeah, he had uh, nothing to gain from doing this. No, no, no. It was just that that's the kind of guy he is. And every time he came to New York, he would stop by, say hello or call or something. He would always, you know, show up and give me a big hug and a kiss and say hi to everybody, because everybody loved him, wow. loved him. He's an awesome guy and deserves every bit of good fortune that he gets. Roger Howard. When Roger first came on the show, he was, you know, this kind of frat boy. And we didn't work together much, but I thought this is a very interesting young actor, very interesting. He had a lot of quirky hang-ups. <laughs> and when we started working together, I realized this was a guy who was desperate for somebody to play off of. And so we played together. I think he enjoyed working with me. I know I loved working with him because he would do things in the middle of a scene that hadn't been written in. But, you know, not something I couldn't react to. I know we were up in the attic once when I was hiding him, and I had brought him food 
and through the whole scene, he's playing with the food and the fork. And I finally, just, you know, I just I I did what a sister would do. I took the knife and the fork out of his hand. I put them down on the tray, and I said, "Now pay attention." And he loved that. And our relationship was always like that. And then he left. And when he came back, he was such a wonderful grown-up. Roger had a lot of growing up to do, which he did. And he came back, and he's he's a wonderful actor. He's interesting. Absolutely. He's funny. He's smart, very smart. And he is always looking to do more, to push it a little bit. <laughs> and I love that. I love that. You know, those scenes just before Todd and Blair got married the first time in the Lord Mausoleum, you were just coming out of your multiple personality bent. Yeah. And, and you had just found out that he was your brother, and you were trying to desperately to convince him that he was worthy of this life that that he yeah. was, you know, scratching and clawing to create for himself and that he was, you know, a, a worthy man. And, you know, those scenes are just uh, stun- uh, stunningly written by Michael Malone and his team, and you guys just acted the hell out of those scenes. Thank you. Thank you. Unbelievable. I loved Michael. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, and actually, he was only with you guys a relatively short time, and so uh, you may not have much to say about him, but I, he never really got his due for being just marvelous, I thought. Timothy Gibbs. Oh, I loved him. Tim was a really good, interesting actor. And I don't know why they let him go. Because he was a good Kevin. He was strong. I enjoyed him enormously. You know, he had that good actor. he had that slightly dark masculine edge that Lee Patterson had all those years ago. Yeah. You could, you could totally buy him as Joe Riley's son. As Joe Riley's son. Exactly. Yeah. Your old buddy Michael Storm. Wait, <laughs> Mikey. Michael was the only actor I could not keep a straight face. <laughs> Michael could break me up. Wow. The only actor who ever could. All he had to do was look at me sideways. This is a genuinely funny human being. And he played such Natu- a straight-laced guy all those years. It's- Naturally so funny. Just in his delivery. And we became very good friends, and we still are. I love him. And Sally, his wife. We were good buds. And I'm so sorry that they didn't bring him back at the end. I wish they had. Such a shame. Yeah. You know, when we were talking about Eterna earlier, you mentioned Paul Roush, whose relatively recent passing was a giant loss to the soap world and to television in general. I, I know from following you over the years how much you respected him and loved working for him, and I'd love to hear a great Paul Roush story if you have one or two at the ready. There are so many Paul Roush stories. <laughs> I was, let me tell you, absolutely shocked when he died. Now, I know people die. Everybody dies. We're all going to die. But somehow it never occurred to me that Paul was going to die <laughs> because he just was not that kind of a guy. I was absolutely stunned. And Israela, his wife, who and we, we sort of became friends, all of us, she put together a memorial service, gosh, oh, maybe six months later in New York. And she said, if anybody has a story to tell, you know, it would be appreciated. Well, I mean, there are so many stories, and some of them are good and some of them are not so good. <laughs> but I thought, well, I would tell one of my favorite stories, and I will tell it to you now. Paul announced one day, we're going to Vienna on location, the whole show. Not everybody, but most of the actors. And I said, God, that's great. That'll be wonderful. And my husband, who was free at the time, he said, we're all going to go with you. You know, and I, obviously we paid for it. And so I said to Paul, where are we going to stay? And he said, we're all staying at the Hilton. Everybody, we're all staying at the Hilton. And I went, oh, Paul, that's such an awful hotel. (laughs) You know, if I pay my own hotel bill, can I stay elsewhere? No. Everybody, everybody is staying at the Hilton. No exceptions. 
And I must say, I badgered him for a couple of weeks about this. <laughs> and he kept saying, no, I told you no, everybody's staying at the hotel. So I thought, okay, Christ. Anyway, we get on the plane, we fly to, oh, and, it's, and I'm checking the weather in Vienna, and it's warm. And we were there in April, I think, and it was like 70 degrees, 72 degrees every day. So I thought, hell, I don't even need to take a heavy coat. This is great. I'm just going to take my raincoat. <laughs> That has a lining, but, you know, sure. I won't need it, so sure. I'll take the raincoat. So we get on the plane, and we fly. We had to fly through Zurich, and we arrive in Zurich, and it's snowing. And I thought, well, that's okay. This is Switzerland. Vienna will be warm. We arrive in Vienna, yeah. <laughs> and there's a big bus to pick everybody up, and it's freezing. It's like 43 degrees, and my raincoat is not sufficient. And I saw everybody, and I said, okay, we'll see you all at the hotel. And we get to the hotel, and we're all checking in, and I'm looking around. And, and I said to somebody, where's Paul? Anybody seen Paul? I said, no, but, you know, he's here somewhere. He's here somewhere. So I didn't bother anymore. And Brian and I checked in, and we had a nice dinner in the hotel. And then we went to bed because it was late. The next morning we had our first shoot, and I saw Paul at the shoot. I said, hey, I didn't see you checking into the hotel last night. Yep. He said, of course not. I said, what do you mean, of course not? He said, I'm not going to stay at the Hilton. I said, you said everybody was staying at the Hilton. He said, don't be ridiculous. I'm at the Imperial. <laughs> and, you know, that was Paul. He loved his comfort. And I absolutely adored that about him. He said, yeah, you all stay at the crappy hotel. I'll stay at the nice hotel. <laughs> and I told the story. And, of course, everybody appreciated it because everybody knew Paul. And that's sure. just the way he was. But he did. T he took Brian and me to dinner at the Bristol, which was lovely. And you know, we became friends. And even after he left the show, we saw each other frequently. Last time we had dinner together was near where he and Israela lived off of Park Avenue, and we had a lovely dinner together. He was really an exceptional man. I always said to him, "I'm so sorry that my father never got to know you." because my father would have enjoyed you so much. Wow. Their love of opera, and there were world travelers, and, and everything about him, my father would have enjoyed him. And my father got to a point in his age where he didn't want to meet anybody new. He said, no, forget <laughs> it, I have too many friends already. Don't yes. introduce me to him. But he would have enjoyed Paul a lot. How great. A lot. Paul was a very interesting man, and I know he went through a very difficult period in his life. That was before he came to us. I never saw him any way, I don't want to say misbehave, but out of control, ever. I only saw him being smart, and he was a brilliant producer. Everything about him was kind of exceptional, which is why I kind of thought, he can't die. <laughs> you know? You know, my it sense was, is, I, 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 I'm not sure that anybody ever had more fun producing a soap opera than Paul Roush did producing One Life to Live circa 1987, 1988, in that, you know, I know his job got a lot tougher in later years and on yeah. other soaps, but my sense is that he loved producing that show in a way that few of us ever love anything that we do in our lives. He did. He had a lot of fun. The, I mean, people used to say, Paul is great until he gets bored. Well, you know, <laughs> Paul was, and, and I understand that, Paul was having a wonderful time, and then he got a little bored, and he created Eterna. And, you know, people say, oh, it's like the worst story ever. Listen, <laughs> we all had fun. We had a lot of fun doing it. It was stupid. It was idiotic. But we had fun. He started going off into fantasy land, which a lot of shows did before and after that, too. So Sure. He was a special guy. 
you know, you mentioned this memorial service, and I'm envisioning Andrea Evans, and I'm envisioning everybody, Jim DePaiva, and everybody showing up for this. Was everybody there? No, no, no. No, no, no. It was in New York. And there were very few actors there. Bob and Laida Woods were there. Sure. Uh, You know, people that had worked for him in New York. Not too many actors, mostly his friends. He had some of the most interesting friends. He invited us, Brian and I, to a party at their apartment, which was an incredible apartment on Park Avenue. It had been Israela's, I guess, and there were like three pianos there because, as you know, she was a brilliant concert pianist. And they were probably 15, 20 people for a sit-down dinner. And I sat next to Paul, and there was a judge and a lawyer and all these fascinating people, and Brian was down at the other end with Israela where all the laughter was going on. We were all talking very seriously, and at the other end, everybody was screaming with laughter. But that was Israela, you know, is Israela. He was, yeah, he was kind of super. You know, I've seen Robin Strasser quoted as calling you the glue that held one life to live together, and you know, I would imagine that even if you, even if even if you scoff at such a notion, you're extremely honored by that because. For much of the audience, you were the lone constant presence on that show throughout all of its various tones and incarnations over the years. I worked very hard at being normal there, which is not easy to do for actors. You know, everybody's got their own little issue and whatever. The only way to get through a day, Lee Patterson gave me the best advice I'd ever had from anybody when he joined the show. We became friends, and... (laughs) When Michael was born, he showed up at our little apartment, Brian's and mine, on 55th Street with the largest stuffed rocking horse that you've ever seen. It barely fit through the door. But Lee told me, he said, you know, the best way to get through these shows, he said, when you come in in the morning, you check your troubles at the front door. When you leave, you pick them up and leave. And I thought that's absolutely the smartest thing I ever heard. You don't visit your griefs your problems on anybody else because nobody cares everybody's there to do a job and get through the day when you become very friendly with people yes then you discuss what's going on in your lives and whatever but for the most part you keep your mouth shut you do your work you concentrate you focus and you don't visit whatever's going on in your life on everybody else which a lot of people do especially in I don't know. We knew we had a couple of people that very lonely kind of people who had no real life outside the show, and the show sure. became their lives. And well, and I'm sure that an environment like that can become a political minefield anyway very quickly. I, I would imagine. Yeah, and when you have nothing else except that one job, and that's what you take home with you every night, it's sad. And we had a number of people on the show like that. And then when the show ends, they were completely lost, completely sure. lost. Conversely, you know, you talk about leaving your own problems at the door uh, when you come in, but do you, was it hard for you to leave Vicky's problems at the door? Because you, oh, God, you know, yes. they put you, they put Vicky you through is not some, real. Through, I know, but they put you through some serious emotional uh, uh, agita yes. and angst, you know, over, yes. across 40 years of, of, of playing that character. And, And I'm sure it must have been hard not to take some of that stuff home with you at night. No, you go home tired. But if you have a brain in your head, you know that it's not real. This is not real. I had, thank God, a wonderful 
personal life. I had a husband who I loved, who loved me, still does, I hope, and I had two wonderful children, and we had a real life. And when I left one life to live at the end of the day, I was tired sometimes, but I knew I was going home to something wonderful. Sure. The sad thing was that some people didn't have that, sure. so they sure. couldn't leave it. They would take everything. Phil Carey was funny, even though he had a complete life outside of this job. He used to say, God, I wish I had Ace's money. God, I wish I had Ace's money. <laughs> you know, as an actress, you are able to express and communicate and even incite great emotion, which must mean that you're capable of feeling great emotion. I mean, is that is that not the key to yes. doing what you do so well? My father taught me so many lessons. The first job I ever had, I was playing Electra, Sophocles Electra. And the director said to me in the first read-through, he said, Erica, you're just going to cry through the whole show. And I thought, oh, great, that's a good note. And I said to my father, I, I can't cry on cue. I, I, do I don't know how to do that. And he said, you have to take it and you know make it something personal. You have to bring up something in your own life that would upset you, and you have to use that until you have enough experience in your life that you have a lot more stuff that you know you can call on. Sure. But I was very young, and I'd had a brilliant childhood. I had nothing that bothered me. I had no tragedies. I had nothing, thank God. And so, you know, it was hard for me in the beginning. In drama school, there were some people who could literally, Judy Light can cry on cue, literally. You say, <laughs> Judy, cry, and she can. She just can. I used to tease her and say it's Jewish guilt. But, you know, she just could. It was something she could do. I couldn't do that. And so I had to work at it. As you get older and life gets in the way, you get a lot more experience with life and a lot more things that you can call on then. But in the sure. beginning, it was hard. You know, I don't want to dwell on the cancellation of One Life, but I do want to mark it. Uh, sure. Can you... I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but can you share yeah, how you got fine. the word? I mean, did you did you yeah. find out at the cast meeting, or or did you did somebody tip you off beforehand? The rumors had been swirling for about two sure. years, sure. and periodically, you know, I'd see somebody from the network and say, "Is this true?" And they go, "No, no, no." <laughs> the actual day that it happened, we were living out here in Connecticut, and I was coming back from literally a trip to the grocery store, and it was about eleven o'clock in the morning. And my cell phone rang just as I was heading up the driveway. We have this long, curvy driveway. And I saw that it was ABC. And, you know, rumors had been swirling around. I thought, oh, sure. this is it. And I thought, I don't want to have this conversation sitting in my car in the driveway. So I <laughs> said, listen, you know, and, and it was Brian Franz, who I actually really liked and who was always kind of straightforward with me. You know, he had his own way of running the network, and a lot of people didn't like him. But... He did the best he could, and he was always very straight up with me. So I came back inside, and I, you know, and I spoke to his secretary, and I said, "Can you call me back in like two minutes? I want to go in the house." And he <laughs> called, and it was Brian, and he said, "Look, I have to tell you, the rumors are true. We're canceling both shows." Oh. And I said, "Okay." And I then said to him, "Well, are you staying?" And he kind of was jolted, and he said, "Well, yes." And I said, "Okay, good. You know." I, I, it was just something to say. I think it kind of threw him a little bit, as if why wouldn't he be staying? But it, as it turned out, he in fact did as it turned not out stay. very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then he said, "I'm going to announce it at a cast meeting that they did 
on video at about 1 or 1.30 in the afternoon during the One Life to Live lunch break. And he was in the studio in California with the All My Children Company, and they videoed it to New York. What can you do? You know, you can be sad. And I was. I was sad. But I thought, okay, you know, I can't complain. I've had a 42-year run. (laughs) Who in this crazy business has a job for 42 years? (laughs) You know? So, you know, yeah, I was sad. And I was kind of concerned and upset because I said to Brian on the phone, Brian Franz, can you tell me why? And he said, yeah. He said, people don't want entertainment anymore. They only want information. And I thought, well, that's the biggest load of rubbish that I ever heard. But obviously Mm. that was his take on it. And everybody was so angry with Brian Franz. Oh, my God, you know, how could he do that? (laughs) Brian Franz had no choice. This was not his decision. Uh, he, he had he a had boss, no, too. I mean, he had, some, he had somebody to answer to as well, as you did. He had like 12 people to answer to. Sure, sure. And this was a decision made by Bob Iger and by whoever was below him in daytime and the head of ABC Entertainment. And those are the people who make the decisions. You know, Brian was told, call everybody and tell them you're, it's over. Yes, he was head of daytime, but this wasn't his decision alone. He probably agreed because he never thought the genre had any kind of longevity for the future. He did tell me that. He said, I don't think there is longevity in this. But I think he was wrong there because some shows are still going. And I know (laughs) from the mail and the phone calls and the stuff that I get from people, they miss it terribly because it was a big part of their lives. Yes, it's entertainment and it's fun, but they miss it because it was a part of their family for so long. We had something in daytime that nighttime doesn't have. We were on five days a week. They knew what we were going to do before we did it. They knew what we were (laughs) going to think before we thought it. And they cared, and they rooted for us, or they, you know, whatever. Nighttime doesn't, I don't think, provoke that kind of a response, because it's on once a week, and then it's gone in the summer. So, you know, you watch it and you say, okay, this is fun. But daytime, you kind of get, oh, my God, what is she going to do? What's going to happen next? (laughs) And it becomes a part of your family. You know, sometimes you get a fierce reminder that there is no such thing as sentimentality in show business. It is a business. You know, I always... I always believe strongly, and I said it on this show very... uh, I I don't know how many times I said it on this show, that I always believed that they would never cancel those shows as long as Agnes was alive. You know, I, I thought that yeah, when she well. passed, eventually, that it would be a whole new ballgame. But I thought that those shows would always survive as long as she did. And, well, I, you know, I, I it's just very hurt. at the end of the day, you you understand it is a business, and there is no such thing as, you know, uh, sentimentality. It is a and, and, yeah. Precisely. Agnes, I must say, was very hurt. Very hurt. Not, not only that they canceled us, but they canceled both of us on the same day. Sure. She was really hurt. The reason we stayed on the air, children went off, I think, in... September, September, October, yeah. and we went off in January, and uh, I know that somebody, when they announced it to the All My Children people, and I don't remember who it was, said, why, why do they get to stay on longer? And Brian Franz <laughs> said, because their ratings are better than yours. Well, I mean, it's the truth. Yeah. Our ratings were better than children's. And funny enough, uh, your ratings got stronger as it got closer to the finale. Yeah, because Frank Valentini, God bless him, I love that man, said, we are not going down badly. We are going out on with a bang, and we did. They wrote better and better and better stuff and tried to keep it all just as interesting and as alive as ever. 
you know, the final episode was one of the best final episodes I can remember ever seeing on a soap. And the moment that everybody still remembers and talks about was the speech, your speech, yeah. from the second to last episode, the little monologue you gave. Uh, yeah. Within the context of the show, you were talking about Fraternity Row, the show within the show. and you yeah. know, But in reality, yeah. you were talking straight about to the audience about the unique way that that yeah. uh, we who watch these shows connect with you. Uh, uh, did you have any input on that, or was that in the script Not word for word? Not one it? word. That was straight out of the mind of Ron Carlovati. A couple of weeks before, I was asked to go to the sound booth and record something, and they had literally handed it to me. I didn't have to learn it. They just handed me these pieces <laughs> of paper. I said, what's it for? And they said, well, we're going to play it over you know, some stuff, so you just have to read it. And I didn't know where it was going to be played over. I thought it's just a story about, you know, and they said, oh, it's about Fraternity Row going off the air. And I said, okay. When I actually saw it, I was very moved because of the way they cut it together. And I was kind of a little bit annoyed with myself because I thought, I wish I had known <laughs> how this was going to play. You know, it's so funny because I was going to ask you if, you if you knew instantly, if you knew instantly that that was going to be the moment that people would remember. I was going to ask you if... If you if you had any idea. No, wow. not at all. They didn't even tell me what it was going to be. They just said, we're going to play it over something. Because I think they hadn't quite decided yet. It wasn't sure. that they were lying to me. They just hadn't sure. decided yet. I just kind of wish that I had known at the time. I don't think I would have done it any differently, because I think the point of it is that it had to be very straightforward and unsentimental. That's just how it had to be played. The joke with all of us fans is that ABC, most of the time, I mean, there was, a, there was a brief period during the Linda Gottlieb years where One Life was really pushed by the network and, and you know, probably, by, probably pushed by her chiefly in terms of getting promotion for the show. But other than that, the show got pretty minimal publicity, I think. And the joke with yep. us was that ABC seemed to forget that you guys were even on the air, that General Hospital and Now All My Children got all of the attention and promotion. Yep. Did you guys feel that way as well? Oh, yeah. You can't take it personally. Frank was very upset about that. He used to say, "I'm begging them, just you know, give me a, give me one, <laughs> one, one thirty seconds, something, somewhere." <laughs> but they didn't bother to promote it. It's a shame. Linda had her own connections. Linda did not do one life to live any favors. She was there for her own reasons, and she was very friendly with, I think, Maxine or whoever it was who hired her. Maybe not Maxine. I don't remember. There were so many uh, Pat Philly was there at the time. and, and Yeah, Pat was head of daytime. And uh, I think Mickey Dwyer Dobbin was there. and Yeah, maybe it was Mickey. Anyway, whoever hired her, they, she came in and she said, oh, I'm going to revolutionize daytime. And she tried to fire all the directors, and she was told, you can't do that. <laughs> and she was going to hire all Hollywood directors. And they said, it's a different union. It's a whole different medium. We have five cameras on wheels, and it's tape. It's not film. <laughs> and she literally, I think she tried to fire all the directors, and she had to eat crow and get them back. Linda did not do us any favors. Anyway, let's not talk about Linda. <laughs> you know, I know that uh, there's still some legalities going on, so I don't know how much you can discuss. <laughs> but in terms of the Prospect Park, uh, yeah. You know, the online version of the show. Do you have any regrets at all about participating in that, or did you just no. look at it as a gift? No, that was fun. That was fun. What I regret is that Jeff Quatnitz, who really was in charge of it, really had no idea what he, how to produce a daytime show, you know, a soap opera. Sure. He wanted something that he could 
flash up and throw at the audience without taking into consideration who our audience was. Little old ladies sitting at home who've been watching us for 45 years, when they suddenly see Natalie take all her clothes off, they're going, oh, my God, I can't see this. And they see all the, you know, they didn't want to see that. And for some reason, we weren't telling stories anymore. We were just doing whatever we could to shock the audience. Jeff really didn't have a handle on how to do a soap opera. And had he hired all the actors and changed the name and said, this is not one life to live, this is a whole different show, it could have worked. Or but a spinoff because, or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but because he was selling it as one life to live, sure. yet not delivering what the audience was used to seeing, it didn't work. It also didn't work because he spent... He's a Hollywood guy, and they do things differently in Hollywood. You know, they feed the actors. They, they, you know, they. When we got there, they said, "Oh, and lunch is every day, every morning. There's going to be breakfast and huge buffet lunch." Well, we'd never had that once in our lives, except you know, a, 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 you know, a lunch party or something where you know they brought in food. We've never been fed. And he said, no, no, this is how we do it in Hollywood. This is how we do it. And we thought, well, this is really neat because you get to work at 7 in the morning and you rehearse and then you go and have a lovely breakfast and then you shoot. And he did it primarily because he didn't want people to have to leave for an hour for lunch and be late coming back, you know, and all that stuff. I mean, that's the whole point of it is to keep everyone in one place. We'd never had that, so that was kind of fun. But it wasn't germane to producing One Life to Live. He messed around with the show too much. He did not allow the writers to write what they thought, what, you know, what they, how do I say this properly? Because he was very hands-on producer, and he changed and he fixed and he micromanaged everything. And he wanted one thing, and they would all say, no, you know, this is not what the audience wants, and he said, this is what I want, and this is... You know, he was a micromanager, and I understand what he was trying to do because it was a freaking brilliant idea to take a daytime serial and put it on the Internet. And a uh, known property, uh, you know, something that would and get a known property attention. To yeah. do children and one life to live. Sure. But the money got in the way, the money that he didn't have. He threw money at the show in the beginning. I mean, there was such, you know, lavish sets and thousands of extras and all stuff going on. Then the union, I guess, I'm not sure what the problem was with the union, but obviously they weren't getting what they had been promised. And so they pulled the plug on the show. And that's why the show went off the air. The union stopped. They said, you reneged on your part of the bargain, and we're shutting you down. And they said, no, we're going to work this out, we're going to work this out, we're going to work this out. And, of course, we never went back because there was no money left then. And the whole mess with suing ABC, (laughs) you know, that's a very long, complicated story. When One Life to Live was canceled by ABC and they initially said, we would like to take this and put it on the Internet, they made a deal that they were going to buy all the sets and the costumes and the props. And ABC said, great, because we don't want them. <laughs> Fabulous. And then it didn't happen. And somehow they were supposed to pay for all of that, but they didn't. And in exchange, ABC said, okay, 
we want to use four actors on General Hospital. And I think that was part of the deal. I think. I'm not entirely sure about this, but I think that was part of the deal. And then at General Hospital, they went and killed two of the characters. Yes. <laughs> and Prospect Park said, wait a minute, we own those characters. You can't kill those characters. And they said, well, we just did. Because essentially Prospect Park paid for the rights, and they did own the characters, which is why so few could go there. You could not go to General Hospital and play uh, Vicky or whatever, except for the four characters who went. And these were characters that belonged to Prospect Park. So Prospect Park sued them, and then ABC sued them back for whatever. I don't remember that. You know, it, it got crazy. It started sure. at a $25 million suit, and then it was $195 million or whatever it was. You know, it's still going on. And then Prospect Park, who still owes a lot of people a lot of money, including me. They owe me a lot of money. Um, but it was, you know, I was it was guaranteed me. And then they, they obviously have not paid. And I talked to the after people, and he said, they have no assets. You're never going to see that money. And I said, no, I, wow. mean, I'm, I know that. <laughs> they have other shows that they produce, but, sure. but everything is in a separate whatever. I mean, they, they, they owe the – I'm sure you've seen the papers from the bankruptcy thing. They owe the studio money. They owe the people that they rented all the equipment from money. They owe everybody money. They owe their lawyers money. <laughs> <laughs> it was a real shame that it didn't work out because it was such a good idea. And Jeff and Rich Frank put it together. I think had they had a producer who was able to stand up to them, and it wasn't that Jennifer couldn't. It's that she was a little inexperienced, and Jeff just rode roughshod over her. You know, he said, You'll, you know, you, 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 I'm your boss. You have to do what I say. And I would imagine she was just damn happy to have the job in the first place. Well, Jen was delighted. And she would have been very, very good in the long run because she'd been in daytime so many years of her life. She knew so much about it. She was a director. She had been a producer. And she's smart. And she would have been very good at it. But she had a boss who really didn't know what he was doing. And the whole money thing got in the way, of course, too. You know, we found out that it was over in the ninth paragraph of a ten-paragraph story in the Los Angeles Times. Is that how you guys got the news as well, or, or were you forewarned ahead of time that you might not be no, no, no. returning no, after no. your hiatus? No, I got an email saying, have you read this? <laughs> and that's when we knew it was over. <laughs> Holy because mackerel. they kept saying, oh, we're coming back, we're coming back, we're coming back. I think we ended in June when it was the last air date, and I was at the studio that day, and... I was supposed to shoot a scene, and the way they had set it up, it was, you know, these people go, and then these people, and then these people, and I was like third up, and I said, fine. And then all of a sudden, they start making announcements. No, 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 we're going to shoot Dorian and David first, and then we're going to shoot so-and-so, and after that. And I kind of got annoyed, and I said, what is going on? What is the problem here? You know, what is all this hysteria and this scrambling? And Jill Mitwell, one of our directors, was there, and she pulled me aside because she saw that I was getting really pissed off. Because wow. I said, you know, you, we people are, what, the, what are you doing? And she told me what happened. She said, they're going to, the union is going to pull the plug, and they've got to get this one scene shot between Dorian and David in order to finish a show. And I said, oh, okay, okay. And then, in fact, they sent us all home. They shot the scene between Dorian and David, and they sent us home. Wow. And I went home, and I said, that's it. And they pulled the plug. Oh. They said, we're coming back as soon as they can negotiate with the unions. 
we're going to come back. And they said we're coming back in uh, first in July and then in August and then in September and then in November. <laughs> and, of course, we never did. Don't so talk that. to me about life now. Have you been enjoying life out of the spotlight? Yeah. You know, I always had a wonderful real life, and now I get to enjoy it because I'm home. And I'm taking care of things that have been, you know, on the back burner for 40 years. For 40 years, you know, yeah. <laughs> You know, getting rid of junk, and I sleep late, and I read a lot. You know, it, I've, I'm, it's like a normal life. It's fun. Not that, I mean, I loved working more than anything. I just loved every second of it, really. I missed that. I missed, in the beginning it was hard because I had had a routine for so many years. Of course. But now I have a different routine, and I'm very happy. And, you know, if somebody calls me and says, you want to go back to work, I'd say, sure, why not? But that's only because I like to work. But right now I'm very happy. I mean, I'm sitting outside in my gorgeous garden. Life is good. Life is very good. My health is good. My husband's health is good. You know, my kids are good. i got nothing to complain about. A couple of my listeners wanted to know if you took any souvenirs from the Landfair set or from the show in general when you wrapped. Oh, yeah. I don't think I took anything from the online because they kept saying, you're coming back, don't take anything. But when we closed the ABC production, everybody kind of, you know, I took something that had been on the set. It was a little stupid little horse on wheels. You know, it, just, it was on my set for all those years. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it didn't mean anything other than that it was a part of what had been my life for so long. And I have... I don't know, know how long you watched the show, but when Joe Riley and Vicky were married, we lived in the carriage house, and there was a ceramic turtle, and I took that. I have that, <laughs> and I have this little horse. That's all I have. I wanted I very much what we got of the online. There was a gorgeous table in my living room, a big round sort of table. I really wanted that, but there was no way to sneak that out. <laughs> Can't do that. This may not be phrased uh, terribly elegantly, and I'm not sure how, quite how I want to ask this, but you know, I'm curious, now that you have a bit of a remove from the hothouse environment that was One Life to Live, you know, I wonder if you feel differently now about your time and your work and your life as Victoria Lord than you might have when you were in the heat of the moment for 40 years. I mean, does, does that work? And that period of your life means something different to you now that you're half a decade removed from it. Does it mean anything different? No. No. It was a great job. I loved every second of it. We provided entertainment for millions and millions of people over 40-some-odd years. And that's kind of wonderful. And I had a great fabulous job for all those years and that's wonderful there's no change i loved it then i love it now you know i am very sorry that it ended the way it did but you know there's nothing you can do about that sure that's all you know i told erica and told her and told her repeatedly to the point of inducing nausea how much that show, and more specifically and genuinely, how much her work on that show has meant to me and the place it has held, that she has held, in my life, in my heart, for the vast majority of my time on this planet. But I don't think she fully appreciated the entire extent of my devotion and my admiration. And that's probably the exact way it's meant to be. I mean, you know, maybe I don't even fully know how much Erica Slezak's work has meant to me over these many years. 
Erica was on that set in 1971 and in 1978, in 1988, in 1995, in 2011. She was on that set every damn day for 40 years, working, memorizing lines, acting her guts out, and she had no clue who was out in the world watching her, hanging on her every line of dialogue, adopting her as a member of their extended family. And, you know, I sit here and I record these episodes, these interviews, and I toss them out into the world, and I know that I'm proud of each and every piece of this content that I attach my name to. And I get raw data about how many people listen, how many people listen all the way through, how many people download. I get all these raw numbers to process and crunch. But in actual fact, I have no idea really who's out there listening to this and precisely how the people who listen to this show actually invite and accept this content into their lives. You know, I have no idea if these interviews are nothing more than background noise for you or if you carry them as close to your heart as I carry the things that I love. I don't know, I'll probably never know, and I'm likely not meant to know. Here's what I do know. I know that show, Erica's show, Agnes Nixon's magnificent, miraculous creation, One Life to Live, that show literally gave me life. And I don't mean that in the way that phrase has come to be thrown about in the social media realm. I mean that in a time in my life when such things were all but impossible to find, that show quite genuinely gave me a reason to want to see another day, every day. I mean that in a time in my life when I felt like I literally didn't have a friend in the world except for Bo, for Sarah, for Asa, Tina, crazy-ass Tina, for Cord, for Max, Dr. Larry, Nurse Brenda, Gabrielle, for Victoria Lord, that show gave me a safe harbor and a daily dose of pure comfort that I clutched onto by the crust of the skin of my fingernails every day until I was strong enough to stand up straight again. You know, you might call it a silly soap opera, and I might call it a motherfucking miracle, if only for the fact that it existed the way it did, when it did. And we might both be right, but the fact of the matter is, do not ever doubt that anything, when viewed from the right angle, anything, a poem, a book, a quilt, a recipe, a rosebush, a song, yes, even a silly soap opera, anything can change the world. It changed my world, and I am forever grateful. Just to bring this back to where we kicked this off last night, Erica Slazak posted a quick little paragraph on her website regarding the passing of Agnes Nixon, in which she wrote the following. She was more than a great writer, producer, and boss. She was a warm, loving, and wonderful woman with a truly delightful and somewhat wicked sense of humor. It was my very great privilege to have known her and to have worked for her. When she hired me to play Vicky on One Life to Live, she changed my life and my career, and I will forever be grateful to her. I wish her peace and angels all around her. She deserves that. You know, the only thing I would dare add to that is this. I believe that I would not be alive right now without Agnes Nixon's glorious television creations, but I know that Brandon's buzz would not exist without her work work which I have spent the lion's share of the past eight years and 102 episodes dissecting and analyzing and remembering and celebrating on this platform. You know, I speak for myself, but I'm sure my peers in this racket would wholeheartedly agree with me when I say, Agnes, we are all your children, and Godspeed on your next journey, you marvelous, magnificently astute woman. Yeah, I need to send a quick thank you to my old pal Susie Bedsoe Horgan for greasing the wheels and helping me set this entire encounter with Erica in motion four years ago. Susie, you really are the greatest, and I appreciate you more than you know. Also, I must tell you that my beloved dared me to thank our dog Kelly 
who more than once in the three weeks it took me to actually compose the prose for these two episodes uh, would come curl up next to me on the couch and keep me company while I tortured myself trying to put all of this together. Thanks, my schmoofy head, for being the best sidekick in town. Finally, and of course most crucially, a million thanks, a billion thanks to the queen herself, Erica Slezak, for bringing her grace and her greatness to Brandon's buzz, and for willingly subjecting herself to so much more of my mad rambling than any human, much less one of her regal stature, should ever be exposed to. You, my darling, are an American treasure, and I would be remiss as a fan and as a man if I didn't thank you one final time from the bottom of my heart for all you've given of yourself for all of these years in giving me and your millions of fans a lifetime of entertainment. My admiration and respect for you knows no bounds, Erica, and I promise you I'll treasure the memory of this exchange with you from here to eternity. Well, therapy session over. I gave you fair warning at the top of last night that this one was a little more personal to me than you may be used to from this program, and I thank you for not heeding that warning and for once again letting me be in your ear this evening. At any rate, Time to cut the lights on Brandon's Buzz one more time. If you're listening, you already know how to find the show, clearly. But in case you don't, three places online, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz is home base for this show. You can see everything about the show at that website. All the episodes, what's coming on the show, what's been on the show, what is on the show. It really is Bishop Control for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. Also, be sure to check out my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. Click that. That takes you to a full radio archive, a full listing of every episode. This is episode number 102. This and all previous 101 all available at the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com. You can also find me on iTunes, guys. I am on iTunes. Type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Click on my Puzzle Piece logo there. From there, you can see every episode, and you can download each individual episode as podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your computer or your device whenever you log in. So I'm all over the place. I'm on iTunes. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Google the words, Bing the words, Brandon's Buzz, and something will pop up that points you in my direction, I promise you. And as always, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming in my direction, and I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind, so spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show. And you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check it out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it better when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.